0: Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We will kick off the episode as usual with our news roundup in which we will talk about BlackBerry uh, not only reporting its quarterly earnings but finally announcing what a lot of people have been expecting for a long time which is they're going to stop making their own hardware. Uh, Secondly, we've got a couple of things around Twitter. First of all, today they announced that they will be opening up moments to everyone. Uh, Until now, this has been basically something that Twitter curates, uh, but now it'll be open to everyone. And then the other thing, of course, with Twitter is ongoing rumors about a possible acquisition. So we'll talk about that as well. And then thirdly, we're just going to talk briefly about the event that Elon Musk and SpaceX held this week about uh, travel to Mars and what that might involve Uh, Our second segment, as usual, will be our question of the week. And uh, given the Spectacles news from Snapchat and Snap Inc. this week, it seemed logical to finally jump on a topic that we've threatened to cover several times in more depth, which is Snapchat. And so the question is going to be, what is Snapchat? And then we'll answer that question from several different perspectives, uh, and I'll be answering the questions this time around. And then our third segment will be uh, a trend that seems to be, uh, particularly in the news this week, it's been obviously going on for some time, but is about consumer technology companies uh, going into the enterprise and doing interesting things there. So we have uh, Apple's announcement with Deloitte today, we have a report this week uh, that Facebook at work will finally launch more broadly next week. Um, we talked a bit about Samsung and the enterprise last week, I think, but uh, that's an ongoing topic there as well. And then as it happens, the BlackBerry news that we'll be talking about earlier in the segment kind of is a, is a counter trend in some ways here. So we'll talk about that again in that context. And then we'll wrap up as usual with our weekly pick. So to kick off uh, the news roundup, Blackberry, as I said, n- announced their earnings Wednesday morning. Uh, but the big news really was that they're finally getting out of the hardware business and they're going to be licensing uh, some of their software to uh, and, and other sort of uh, IP elements to third parties who will make hardware. So it's not like there won't be any Blackberry devices anymore. They just won't be made by Blackberry the company anymore. They'll be made under license. and they're also licensing various other things. Uh, including a BlackBerry hub to go on Android 6 smartphones and so on. So um, moving in that direction, again, as I said, something that's been rumored for a long time. But uh, what did you make of that news, Aaron?
1: Well, whether or not there are BlackBerry devices in the future remains to be seen, right? <laughs> I mean, in terms of whether or not the, the software licensing strategy works well for them. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know I, it's, it's a necessary pivot. I think it's going to take them time, though to, to find a place in the mark in the market for, for a sustainable company. And so, I don't know, I mean, the jury's out. I'm not, I'm not inclined to write them off completely. It's easy to do that because of how far they've fallen from their, from their dominance, um, you know, from a decade ago. But I think, you know, I, I think it was necessary. And I think we'll just have to see what happens and, and how, and how good of a job they do. The problem with being in the software space is they open themselves up to quite a bit more competition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot easier for people to write code than it is to make phones. And and, and so whether or not they have the prowess to compete when there are more competitors uh, in the market, well, I guess that will remain to be seen.
0: Right, yeah. So no, the analogy I came up with a while back was... Um, that of a pair of mountains with a valley in between. And so the analogy was that BlackBerry had been on top of one peak that was a very tall peak. Uh, and that was, you know, when they were at their peak in sort of 2012 or thereabouts um, in terms of shipments and so on. They then came down into this valley. So their, their shipments literally fell off a cliff. Um, and uh, they found themselves in this kind of valley. And then there was this strategy for, you know, sort of. Uh, climbing the next peak along. And the problem was that the next peak was kind of shrouded in uh, mist or cloud, and so that there was another peak there, there was kind of a route to get up it, uh, and it was based on software rather than hardware. It just wasn't clear yet quite how high that peak would be, whether it would be anything like the height of the previous peak that they'd been on. And that still feels like an appropriate analogy. You know, they're climbing that peak now, and it's a software one rather than a hardware one. Uh, but it's very unclear quite how big that will be whether it'll be anything like what they achieved in the past Uh, and now hardware explicitly won't be part of that Uh, Future and that next peak that they're going to be going up. So, um, you know, this is kind of where they find themselves today. I think they I've seen a lot of people today talking about, oh, you know, they they should have done this a lot sooner. The reality is even now it's about a third of their revenue that comes from hardware. So hardware has been a very substantial part of the total business for a long time. Simply sacrificing that revenue would have been very tough without also bringing down lots of costs associated with that business first and then building up software revenues and building something of a trajectory there that felt sustainable to replace that lost revenue and so I think it really did take until now for them to be able to finally uh, flip the switch on this and, and move forward. It, it's going to be a dramatic change for them obviously. The the company was renamed after uh, the devices belatedly a few years back uh, and now the devices won't even be part of the business anymore and, and their future is in a variety of different kinds of software and licensing. So be very interesting to see how that pans out Um, I I haven't envied the management team uh, John Chen and the rest ever since he took over it was it felt like a really difficult company to turn around and he's done a decent job and I think Torsten Hines, the previous CEO did a decent job in terms of setting some cost cutting and other stuff in motion that's really helped as well Um, but it's as you said that a future that's far from assured and it's far from clear in terms of quite what kind of company it will be a few years down the line.
1: I, you know, just one quick comment. I, you know, the idea that it took them this long to to get rid of hardware because of the share uh, in terms of its revenue. Yeah, I, there's, there's a lot of talk it, that uh, I think Steve Jobs is sort of the poster boy of this, this idea of focus and learning to say no to things. I think it's hardest to say no when the thing that you're saying no to already produces revenue for your company. And I think that becomes um, a, a pair of handcuffs in the long run you have to it's not just about saying no to the stuff you do or the stuff you might try it's 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 often for companies having to say no to stuff that's actually bringing in revenue but isn't the best way to spend your time and energy and and i think we've watched that play out
0: with blackberry right absolutely no agreed um so the second news roundup topic we talked about is twitter and a couple of different stories here again opening moments to everyone and in some ways you can see this as part of this sort of trend towards stories that snapchat sort of pioneered and instagram recently copied this is a different take on it this could be third party tweets and so on and not just your own but it's a way of kind of creating this sort of personally curated set of content from twitter and then the other side of the twitter story right now of course is the frequent stories that they'll be acquired at some point and this is something i wrote a blog post about Uh, I think it was on Friday afternoon. But uh, the moments thing is not huge news in and of itself. It's something that I think they've talked about doing for a long time. It's an interesting bit of product news. You know, we've had some of that recently with the changes to the 140 character limit. None of this is dramatic. None of it feels like it's really going to change the trajectory of the company from a product perspective. But it's interesting incremental uh, improvement in functionality. I actually think the acquisition stuff's a lot more interesting right now, and I've had a number of conversations with the reporters over the last few days about this. Um, the take in my piece last week, and we'll link to this, but was basically that no matter who acquires it, none of the potential acquirers feel like they really will be able to fix the core problems with the product. There are several of those acquirers that feel like they will be focusing on the advertising side of the business, and Google's probably the most obvious example of that. But there's no one out there that really feels like they'll come in and make dramatic improvements to the product. And that's what worries me the most as a user of Twitter and somebody who relies very heavily on it and has been critical of of the slow evolution. We spent a lot of time on a previous episode talking about this. Um, But that's my worry is that none of these acquirers really feel like they're going to fix anything on the product side.
1: Yeah, and that is the heart of what matters the most in an acquisition of Twitter is what, what will happen to product. I mean, there, there are two, two dangers, right? One is that whoever acquires Twitter will continue the very, very slow, kind of ridiculously slow development of the product, glacial, in fact. And then the other side is, is that they'll make a whole bunch of rash changes to the product in the interest of novelty, but not really in the interest of innovation. Um, which sometimes happens when companies get acquired, the they don't, the acquirer doesn't really appreciate the core users of the product and and how to build off of that. You know, I, I whether or not Twitter is sort of stuck because it has these core users that that uh, um, that are kind of holding them back. At the same time, they're you know keeping them in business. Um, and that's a really hard thing to know and understand. I, but my inclination is not to give up on the innovation side. So I'm not quite as pessimistic about an inquirer being able to come in and make changes to the product that are actually innovative and useful. But it does feel like there needs to be a new management team in place for that to even happen. There's, I I just don't think we have any indication. And and this is including, you know, um, some of the executive turnover that Twitter has had over the past couple of years. There just doesn't seem to be a leadership team in place with much of a vision about how to innovate. And so I think, I think an acquisition does pose risk to Twitter, but I, I don't know. I could I could picture an acquirer. And it would obviously depend a lot on who it was, but I could picture an acquirer come in with a better vision than Twitter's management team has had to this point.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know we did, as I say, talk about this in, uh, in depth on a previous episode. It was episode fifty eight. If you didn't listen to it at the time, um, but you know one of the saddest things is it felt like Jack Dorsey had a good vision for product and what needed to happen a year ago when he took over as interim CEO, and he's just largely abandoned it since then in this sort of obsession with live video, and and I'm not at all convinced that that's the solution to Twitter's problems, but I guess we'll see how that pans out. Um, The third news roundup topic we wanted to cover was this Elon Musk SpaceX uh, event uh, focused on travel to Mars, which is kind of a departure, Uh, although we were talking before we started recording about the fact that there's a theme to everything that Elon Musk seems to be involved in, whether it's cars or Hyperloop or space exploration. It's all about travel and kind of getting from one place to another. Uh, Ironically, Elon Musk seems to need better transportation since he's always late to these events. But uh, at any rate, uh, Aaron, I think you you followed this one slightly more closely than I did. Do you want to give us a quick rundown of what was talked about? Sure.
1: Well, essentially, uh, Musk announced a plan to colonize Mars. Um, I mean, (laughs) as crazy as that sounds. uh, The the idea is built around this idea of a reusable rocket um, that would cost about $10 billion to develop Um, and in fact, he said that with, without unexpected development delays, they could have that rocket, um, available for takeoff as soon as 2024. Um, each time the rocket launches, it could bring a hundred passengers to Mars, um, and, uh, and could do that trip, uh, every 26 months for, you know, the, the initial period. Um, the problem is to actually colonize Mars in a way that's self-sustaining based on Musk's estimates it would take anywhere from 40 years to a century to build and would need a civilization of about a million people (laughs) which would take a lot of flights, tens of thousands of flights, um, not including the flights to ferry equipment and all the other stuff that they would need to to actually make a sustainable colony on Mars. You know, it, it's talking about this stuff feels like a sci-fi movie, but, but here's the thing. You know, Musk is the guy who pioneered electric cars in a way that nobody else was able to do. Um, you know, I realize he's in this battle about reusable rockets with Jeff Bezos, but to Musk's credit, you know, he was really intent on that at a time that it sounded kind of crazy. Um, if we are going to colonize Mars, somebody's got to do it and uh and honestly if i had to choose a single human being on the face of the earth right now to lead that i would probably choose elon musk um that of course brings up the question of why we'd want to colonize mars um and and his and his point is is that it's essentially an insurance policy for humanity because this you know if we're trapped here on earth you know something like what like interstellar or any number of other sci-fi movies you know we have to the idea is things might get so bad here we have to leave and, and uh, um, you know, hopefully it never comes to that. Hopefully Mars
0: is a tourist destination for centuries to come. There we go. All right. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, he does seem to have his finger in an awful lot of pies, Elon Musk. And, uh, you know, he's already trying to merge Tesla and solar city. He's got the SpaceX business. He's got the whole... Hyperloop project that he kicked off, although I think others are carrying a lot of the the weight on that one. Uh, But yeah, he's a very fertile mind, uh, certainly, and and not short on ambition either. Uh, Well, let's move on to our question of the week, which, as I mentioned at the outset, is is focused on Snapchat, and and particularly in light of the announcement that happened very sort of rushed, in a very rushed way over the weekend of uh, Spectacles, which was kind of preempted by... Uh, The discovery on Friday by somebody at Business Insider of a a video on YouTube that was supposed to be secret and somehow was available for viewing so uh, rushed all kinds of people uh, Snapchat and the Wall Street Journal into putting out some stories and so on about that over the weekend Uh, But we've talked about snapchat a few times kind of touched on it briefly when um Erin uh, interviewed uh, Allison from the Allison Show a couple of weeks ago. She certainly talked about how she uses it, which is an interesting angle, too. We're just going to talk about it from a couple of different perspectives. We're going to talk about what is Snapchat as a product, and then what is Snapchat or now Snap uh, as a company as well, and kind of what will it be a few years from now, too. So, Erin's going to be kind of asking the questions today.
1: So, when I talked with Allison, we discussed the idea that the product itself is pretty confusing, especially for older users smartphone users so let's start with the product and hopefully you can demystify it a little bit for me because i have to admit i still i still don't quite get it when i open up snapchat i can't believe i'm that old anyway (laughs) go ahead
0: but yeah i this is you know and I, i the caveat up front should be that i'm far from a snapchat expert i've played with it a little bit but i don't use it regularly and um, there are others that know a lot more about it than I do, but I suspect our listeners are probably more like us than those people. So hopefully my perspective will be helpful. I think one of the most jarring things about Snapchat when you open it is that it opens to the camera and not to any sort of familiar interface or anything like that. On that camera feel, uh, screen, there are... Uh, a whole range of different buttons and it's not obvious what any of them do until you start to kind of tap around on them. And so as you tap around or as you swipe left and right, which was a big part of the user interface on Snapchat, the value kind of becomes apparent. So there is the camera and you can either take pictures or record videos there, which you can then send to people. Uh, Once you have a photo or a video, you can kind of annotate it. So a photo you can write on it and and do other stuff with it, put stickers on it and so on uh, before you send it to somebody Um, if you were to swipe across the screen from left to right from that camera, um, so that you're now looking at what's on the left of the screen, you get a list of your chats. So all the different people that you've communicated with and, uh, and the latest conversations with them and that kind of thing. So that's there. That's probably one of the most simple parts of Snapchat. If you swipe the other way, you get two additional tabs, stories and discover uh, and Stories is really, uh, was a new product that, that Snapchat launched um, after its founding, which we'll talk about in a bit more depth in a minute. And Discover was another one. So these are things that have kind of been added later on in the Snapchat kind of history, if you like, um, and that have kind of added additional functionality above and beyond the sort of initial value proposition that it launched with. And so it's probably worth going through a brief history before we get back to discussing some of those things in more detail. Um, So Snapchat launched in July 2011. It was called Peekaboo at the time. Um, It was launched by uh, Evan Spiegel and um a, a college classmate of his uh, there was actually a third guy involved as well and he ultimately ended up suing snapchat after being kicked out and they settled with him uh, to to end that lawsuit at some point um but it was called peekaboo when it first launched in summer of 2011 was renamed to snapchat by the fall uh, it was ios only for then and the uh, android version didn't uh, release until october 2012 well, they had their first funding of about a year in, just under a year in. Um, and, and the story of the first funding is kind of interesting. The people that kind of discovered that uh, that their kids were using this app that they'd never heard of and then became interested in it and ultimately invested in it. Um, and so there was a first round of that, and then a second round involved uh, Michael Linton, uh, who's a Sony executive, uh, and his wife and their kids uh got involved, and Michael Linton ended up being on the board, uh, which is how, when the Sony hack occurred, some of the Snapchat details emerged through that because he was a board member and and his emails were leaked out. But at any rate, this app was launched in 2011 on Android in 2012, and originally it was just about photographs, and and the key value proposition was that these photographs would disappear after they had been viewed. Um, And that inevitably led to a certain reputation for the kind of things that you'd want to send uh, in that way and and we'll talk about this a little bit later on but but actually it's never really been used to a great extent for that kind of thing and and we'll talk about where that misunderstanding came from and and kind of what it's really being used for later but um the lawsuit came in that i mentioned and then other functionality that launched later on so there was just photos in the beginning video sharing came shortly after the android version was released in in late 2012 snapchat stories launched about a year after that so late 2013 Um, And stories really were a way of saying uh, during the course of the day, you take all these pictures, these snaps and and videos and so on, and yet they disappear. And uh, stories was a way of saying you get to kind of bundle up all your things from that day into sort of a daily story that people can then see. So even if somebody isn't actively communicating with you right now, this becomes kind of your profile, if you like, your timeline for the day. Uh, in which all your stuff from that day can be kind of bundled up into a little story that plays in chronological order, combining photos and videos together. Uh, And so that's become a big part of the service since then when that launched in 2003. Um, Snapchat's acquired quite a few companies along the way as well. So one of the companies that acquired back in March 2014 was called Virgence Labs. And this was actually a company that had made uh, video recording eyeglasses. And so this is the core of the technology that then became Spectacles, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. Uh, it wasn't announced or anything at the time. It wasn't until December of 2014 when the Sony hack happened and the emails were released that an email about the acquisition came out and, and the price, $15 million, came out at that time as well. Um, Snapchat added text chat and video calling in May 2014. Uh, There was a nasty story where a lot of Evan Spiegel's emails from when he was a a member of a fraternity in college leaked out, and uh, he came across as being a pretty nasty sort of classic bro sort of character, and he was very embarrassed by this and had to put out public statements about it. But for many people, I think it reinforced the sense of who he was. He was this young um, guy, sort of newly rich and quite sort of arrogant and so on, and uh, that's a perception that I think has stuck around since that, that all leaked um additional functionality that got launched later our story which was basically a collaborative approach to making stories so stories originally was about you uh, curating your own stuff um into a story our story was about event based so there was a concert or whatever anybody who was uh located at the concert could contribute their own content to a story about that concert for example and originally it was just a free for all it started to be more curated over time as the volume of the content increased um, Later on, Discover launched, so early 2015, uh, this Discover function. This is really where third-party professional content started to come in. So there's a whole variety of partners that uh, started contributing content, and it's women's magazines it's news sites it's uh buzzfeed it's a whole variety of different contributors at this point to that discover area but they contribute this third-party sort of professional content it looks a lot like a snapchat story in some ways uh and there's there's often a way to kind of drill down and get more detail about something there um other things that happened over time lenses were added just about a year ago now and lenses are um where you get to take video and as you take video various elements get superimposed on it and so you can look like an animal it can distort your face it can swap your face with somebody else who's in the video or you can do the same thing with a picture um, that you have of somebody so all kinds of clever stuff that happens in real time in the video and you can kind of record that and share that with people Um, Geo filters are another big thing. So uh, Alison mentioned this in in the conversation that we had with her, but geo filters are basically a way to uh, attach a filter that can go on a photo um, to a specific place in the world at a particular point in time. And so Alison mentioned using it in the context of the parties that she hosts, Uh, but it could be at a concert, it could be at a restaurant or some other venue uh, where somebody pays essentially to have this geo filter created that's limited to that area. So if you're not at that particular point at the particular time that it's active, you don't have any access to it. But if you're there, it's available within the Snapchat interface, and you can use it to uh, add this sort of filter, which is sort of an overlay that goes over a picture that you might share. Um, and more recently, in February of this year, Snapchat basically made that available to anybody who wants to use it. So if you go to the Snapchat website, it's called an on-demand geo filter, and you can set it up for your private party or whatever you want to use it for as well. Uh, And then July this year, they added Memories, uh, which basically is a way to um, bring a sort of a cloud-based camera roll, essentially, for things that you've shared in Snapchat, so that things can stick around for a bit longer than most things typically do in Snapchat. And then, of course, uh, just in the last few days, they announced Spectacles. So those are some of the sort of key milestones. If we go back to the app that I was describing earlier, Um, Again, the main screen is the camera. You swipe to one side, you get chats, which is sort of text-based stuff, and and pictures that people have sent you. Um, You go to the right, it's stories, and those stories are a combination of things from brands, from that Discover tab, and this is where it gets a bit confusing, because stories and Discover have a lot of the same content but also stories shared by your friends. So things that they've shared within the last 24 hours will show up in that area as well. And then the Discover tab is this sort of third-party content. It's very sort of youth-oriented, so a lot of the brands involved are very much sort of youth brands. There's a lot of new media-type brands in there as well. Um, So your sort of your BuzzFeeds, your Refinery29, there's a a brand called We The People, which has been covering the election in the U.S., for example. Uh, But there are some other sort of better-established brands like CNN, ESPN, Comedy Central, National Geographic, the NFL, and so on that are in there as well. So um, one of the really tricky things about the interface, though, in Snapchat is there's a lot of hidden functionality. So there's a lot of stuff where you have to swipe around to find things, uh, where you have to tap on things that aren't obviously kind of tappable, um if you uh if you take a video for example uh, how you get those lenses to appear that i talk about it's is not obvious immediately um so there's a lot of stuff like that and that's part of why it feels so hard to use if you're not used to it and um that was kind of a deliberate strategy on the part of snapchat they kind of wanted people to play around with it they've always seen it as kind of a bit of a toy and there's an early quote from evan spiegel in which he talked about you know wanting to be uh, something that people couldn't break by doing the wrong thing. You wanted people to just be able to kind of swipe around and tap on things and discover things. But it does make it harder than the average user interface to use. And yet, this seems to have been a very sort of deliberate uh, decision on their part. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how how that's kind of developed over time. So yeah, that's
1: it's fascinating as you describe this product development. And the thing that really stands out to me is the incredible pace of product evolution. I mean, this is a product that you know, started a very simple and over a very short period of time has changed dramatically. Um, This, this observation kind of points me to the next question. Talk to us about Snapchat, I guess, Snap as a company, because, because it takes a certain kind of company, I think, to do what they've done with their product so quickly over such a short period of time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of the most interesting things about this is, you know, the app is difficult to figure out, but sometimes the company is kind of difficult to figure out too. And back in April of this year, uh, and I I did some research to try to find the first reference, and I'm pretty sure that that this was the first reference. So uh, Evan Spiegel was speaking at Columbia University as part of a startup event there, and he, he called Snapchat a camera company. There, which is the first time he'd used that construction. And it's interesting with the spectacles launching this past weekend and with the rebranding of Snapchat as a company to Snap Inc., um, they now use that as their self descriptor as well. So if you look at any of their job postings or anything like that, the first line is Snap Inc. is a camera company. And if you had asked, you know, before he made these comments back in April, you know, what kind of company is Snapchat, most people probably would have said it's a social or a messaging app company. Um, you might have said it's a content company if you were thinking a bit more broadly, given they have this Discover content in there and various other things as well. Um, you might have said it's um, it's an app company, ultimately, because that's all they've made until now. Um, but you might well not have said it's a camera company. But the point that he made in the course of those remarks back in April at, at Columbia University was Snapchat opens to the camera. And that was something that I said just now, too. When you first turn it on, it's jarring. But it is it has always been a camera app and as such Snapchat, the company behind it, was a camera company. You know, everything really is about the camera and about making taking pictures and, and video and sharing those kind of the core of your experience there. Um, but it's it's also interesting because it's it's early on it was known as I think a sexting app so it was known as an app that people would use to take lewd pictures of themselves and send them to their significant other or to other people in general, uh, safe in the knowledge that they would disappear basically. And it got that reputation very early on. As far as I can tell, there was absolutely nothing that Snapchat did to encourage that, and yet it just seemed to be what people latched onto because. People of a certain mindset thought you delete something; it's because you're embarrassed about it, or it's sensitive, or whatever. Uh, and one of the most interesting things about Snapchat is the way that they talk about this. And Evan Spiegel has been really the only spokesperson for Snapchat over time as the CEO and the sort of creator of the app. Uh, but it's very interesting to see how he talks about this uh, because it really hasn't changed over time. He's been very kind of consistent about this. Um, and, and it's interesting because some of this stuff has been echoed by Mark Zuckerberg in talking about Facebook's push into live video recently, which has used a lot of the same sort of language and justifications. But um, I'm going to read you a few quotes from, from Spiegel. Hopefully it won't be too long here, but I think they, they illustrate this quite nicely. Um, this was, I'm trying to think, this? I think this was from a 2014 interview. Traditional social media required that we live experiences in the offline world, record those experiences, and then post them online to recreate the experience and talk about it. Uh, For example, I go on vacation, take a bunch of pictures, come back home, pick the good ones, post them online, and talk about them with my friends. This traditional social media view of identity is actually quite radical. You are the sum of your published experience, otherwise known as pics or it didn't happen. Or in the case of Instagram, beautiful pictures or it didn't happen and you're not cool. This notion of a profile made a lot of sense in the binary experience of online and offline. It was designed to recreate who I am online so that people could interact with me even if I wasn't logged on at that particular moment. What he means by that is you have a profile that people then can interact with even if you literally aren't there. And so... Uh, and he talks, there's another quote here, what Snapchat said was if we try to model conversations as they occur, they're largely ephemeral. So he's talking about real-world conversations. You and I are talking, and you know, we may try to write down and save the really special moments, but by and large, we just try to let everything go. We remember it, but we don't try to save it. So his point was life really is ephemeral. That's kind of the way life is. We're not constantly saving everything, and this, this sort of artificial creation that happens in the social networking world where we create this sort of semi-permanent version of ourselves online, that's rarely completely representative of who we are, but is kind of supposed to be, and ends up being this sort of very strange, sort of artificial, constructed version of ourselves. And it is sort of semi-permanent as well. And so it means that we're very careful about what goes in there. We exclude all kinds of stuff that's much more real and genuine than what we actually do share. And so his point was um, that... Snapchat makes sharing much more natural because you worry a lot less about the fact that this stuff's going to be around forever. You share what really is happening right now. You share how you really do look, whether or not you have makeup on or whether you have bedhead, or whether you put on a ridiculous outfit and accidentally wore two socks of different colors this morning or anything else like that. It's just a more natural form of sharing because you know it's going to disappear. It's not going to represent you forever and always. It's not going to be part of some online profile that you're trying to create of yourself. And so Evan Spiegel, as I say, has always been very honest about that. The other thing that he's said along the way several times is also interesting uh, in talking to parents about Snapchat who just don't understand why their kids take billions of pictures every day um, when they themselves have never done that. Um, And he says, people wonder why their daughter is taking 10,000 photos a day. What they don't realize is she isn't preserving images, she's talking. And so what he means is the average Snapchat user is using these images to communicate um, with people that they may not be physically with right now, much in the way that we're talking because we can actually hear each other right now it's a form of communication and just like most communication it's ephemeral it'll disappear over time it you know the sound waves may bounce around for a bit but ultimately it's gone and it's the same with these pictures and so that was their conception of this it wasn't about a way to share things that you'd be embarrassed about and therefore you wanted to delete quickly it was just about saying people communicate a lot more naturally uh, if they know it's not going to be around forever if there isn't going to be a permanent record of it Um, and so Another thing that, that Spiegel's talked about quite a bit is fun and the idea that, you know, this communication should be fun. When it's this highly mediated, highly kind of constructed version of communication that we engage in through most social networks, is highly artificial and it's stressful too because you're always thinking about what's going to put the best possible uh, sheen on whatever it is I'm sharing. Whereas when it's more natural, it can just be fun. You can just enjoy it and be in the moment and so on. And so that's been an element that they've always talked about And it's interesting in that context to think about these spectacles that they launched with so they've described as a toy. And so it very much fits with the idea that Snapchat is for fun, it's for very natural communication. Uh, and that natural element comes out in the spectacles too, which are supposed to kind of mimic the first person view, both in terms of the placement of the, micro, the uh, camera, which is right by your eye, and then the field of view too, which is 115 degrees, which roughly mimics the, the field of vision that you have as a human being through your eyes as well. And so uh, it's really a very, you know, when once you, when you see Snapchat through these eyes and through that sort of prism or perspective, then it starts to make a lot more sense why they get into this. It's a camera company. It's about fun. It's about natural communication and sharing what's really happening in your world. Uh, And if you look at it through that perspective, then Spectacles makes a lot more sense than if you see Snapchat as a social app, an an app company uh, or something else rather than how it describes itself now, which is a, a camera company, a fun company, a company that's kind of about natural sharing and so on.
1: Well, and the idea of a camera company just sounds so different than the way we think of camera companies. Uh, you know, I think if you ask most most people from our generation to name a camera company, they're going to say Canon, right? Or or Nikon, right. or or they mm-hmm. might say Apple, right? right. Or Samsung mm-hmm. with smartphones, but they they're not going to say Snapchat and and in fact the way that he describes photos being a way to, to converse rather than a way to preserve. Right. Um, just reflects something really, really different and unique. So I guess that sets up the last question I wanna ask, which is, you know, what is Snapchat five years from now? I, I mean, especially for a company that has, that has evolved so incredibly quickly and has had such a deep penetration into, you know, into modern culture, especially with young people. What, what is it five years from now as it matures?
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating to think about. And as long as you thought about it as this kind of a social app, then the the sort of timeline seems fairly clear because it's been well-established. You kind of start out mostly in text, then you go to photo, then you go to video, then you go to more immersive video and potentially live video. And at some point you add in third-party content. And to some extent, Snapchat's followed that sort of classic timeline for a social app very closely. They added text later than most do, um, but they've largely kind of followed that. Um, but now they're getting into hardware that's kind of a break from that traditional timeline. And, um, you know, I think that surprised a lot of people, even though there have been some rumors over recent months. And they obviously did make that acquisition of a glasses company a couple of years ago. Um, and so, yeah, it, it forces you to kind of rethink okay, what kind of company is this? But again, if you think about them as, uh, a natural sharing company, if you think about them as a company that has enormous reach among a certain sort of portion of the population, and it's 41% of uh, their sort of target audience uses it every day in the US. Um, and the, the number that Snapchat often uses as a sort of comparator to that is any given US TV network reaches 6% of that audience at most. And so they have this massive reach among a certain population. That's obviously opened up this huge sort of advertising opportunity for them. That's where most of their money comes from today. Uh, And they're trying to ramp that extremely quickly. You know, they haven't been public about these numbers, but some have leaked out and they had relatively modest revenues and lost a lot of money last year. Their revenue projection for this year was a multiple of that and next year is a multiple of that again. So they're growing very quickly. But ultimately, it's going to be a company that continues to add richness to that communication Uh, without making it overly kind of polished and curated Um, but you know once you get into wearables there's all sorts of other interesting things you could do uh, with that you can imagine that these spectacles will certainly get more advanced over time you might well have uh, dual lenses in there for uh, taking more sophisticated kinds of video more even more immersive kinds of video you could see them doing more with exclusive content. This, this content obviously will be exclusive that comes out of the Spectacles, at least in its native round format, which is really quite unique. Uh, and the hardware will obviously be exclusive to them as well. But there you can see a lot more around personalization, around perhaps clothing and other things coming out of that. Um, But, you know, they'll continue to add functionality. They acquired a 3D selfie app a while back that they haven't um, integrated the functionality from into the core Snapchat experience yet. They uh, have brought in something called Bitmoji recently through an acquisition. Um, It's sort of this uh, emoji-like recreation of yourself that's now integrated into Snapchat. There's just going to be increasing investments in kind of making the experience richer, adding more to it, making it more unique and differentiated Um, and just kind of deepening the engagement, deepening the sort of kinds of content that are available there. It's interesting that they did for a while have a plan to invest heavily in first-party content, and they basically abandoned that after a very short period of time. So that seems like one area where they're probably not going to invest more heavily. Um, But, uh, you know, I think more and more third-party content, especially sponsored content, of which there's already quite a bit in the app, uh, is going to be an ongoing uh, theme for them. Uh, but to the extent that they see themselves as a camera company, you could see them broadening out into drones and other areas like that as well as ways to capture more about your life and share more of that with, with friends and so on. So I think it's going to be a fascinating company to watch going forward.
1: Well, I have learned a lot. In fact, just opening up the the Snapchat app as we've been talking, I I feel like I understand things better. I'm still not sure that I would make much use of it right now, but, uh, who knows what the future will bring that way. But, uh, Thanks, that was fascinating.
0: Thanks, Aaron. Well, let's move on to our third segment, uh, which is talking about consumer companies getting into the enterprise market. Uh, And again, the hook for this is Apple announced today a partnership with Deloitte. This is their fourth big enterprise partnership after announcing uh, previous partnerships with IBM, Cisco, and SAP. Uh, This one's about business transformation, so Deloitte Consulting has a big digital transformation practice which helps companies to use digital technology to kind of transform their business processes, and so Apple is partnering with them around that, making sure that they do that particularly well around iOS devices, um, notably iPhones and iPads. Uh, Deloitte has 100,000 iOS devices in use. They have 75 custom apps on iOS already uh, that they use internally, so they're they're very much kind of eating their own, own dog food here. But well, there's going to be 5,000 employees from throughout Deloitte who have an Apple specialization already who are going to become sort of a virtual practice and support some of this. Apple is going to be offering workshops together with Deloitte uh, people to, to do kind of a two week quick exercise getting from kind of concept to prototype to uh, developing apps and other things for, for use inside of companies. But this isn't the only story about kind of a consumer company getting into the enterprise. You know, Facebook, uh, obviously, a consumer company has been working for about 18 months on testing Facebook at work, which is their sort of Yammer or Slack equivalent. Um, they've been testing that sort of in beta for a while now. Apparently, they're going to open it up next week, according to uh, the news site, the information. Um, you know, I spent some time last week with Samsung talking about their enterprise mobility efforts and what they're doing there. Uh, And then, of course, there's the counterpoint, which is the BlackBerry story we talked about before, where you have a device company that started out in the the enterprise and and is now getting out of the device business and going to software. So, um, you know, there are some companies getting out of uh, trying to sell uh, devices in the enterprise while some of these other companies try to sell more consumer stuff in the enterprise. But Aaron, kind of what's your take on this trend?
1: You know, I think it's uh, essentially a full inversion of what the early 90s, or sorry, what the 90s and the early 2000s were about, which was that the tech industry was dominated by enterprise. You know, I mean people were buying Dell's because Dell was making a lot of money selling computers to companies and then and then opened up a consumer business that was really profitable for them for a long, for that stretch and and uh, we we now are at the opposite side of that where instead of enterprise sort of dictating the consumer tech market it's the consumer tech market that's dictating the enterprise one. I mean that all I think got started primarily with uh, with the smartphone res- revolution and the bring your own device um, policy that started taking hold after that. But but what's really what's really happening here is is consumer is bleeding so heavily into enterprise that it's now shaping and dictating the way a lot of enterprise IT decisions are made. I'm especially fascinated by this Deloitte partnership versus the IBM and, and SAP ones, and it, it, because Deloitte is a is a much more general consulting company than the other two are and the other two obviously specialize primarily in IT and Deloitte as a more general consulting firm has a has a lot more to offer uh, by offering iOS solutions if that makes sense like they can they can consult on a more broad array of issues using iOS as a platform for what they're going to be accomplishing uh, obviously this is primarily an IT consulting angle right where they're developing custom apps for, for clients um, to use on iPhones and iPads but but you can easily see this spilling out into all kinds of other areas of consulting and that is a sign to me that that iOS is now poised to be very deeply entrenched in the corporate world, not just uh, um, not just superficially.
0: Yeah, no it's, it's interesting. I mean this is a, the, the whole trend that you're describing is, is being described as the consumerization of IT. Uh, and as you say, it really started with uh, the iPhone. Um, you know, the, the, it, it, there was an element of other stuff before that, people bringing computers into work and saying, you know, make this work because I like it better than my, my computer that I have. But the, the iPhone really drove it home because it was suddenly a device that an awful lot of people had and then the iPad kind of followed on its heels where people would bring it into the company and saying this is the device I want to use, please make it work on the corporate network and kind of force companies into that. And it's interesting because Apple's kind of gone into the enterprise almost by accident. You know, the original iPhone didn't even have uh, Exchange ActiveSync support uh, or any other sort of business grade features in it. Um, That came pretty quickly and they've added additional features over time. But for a long time, Apple was just basically adding features and letting enterprises figure it out for themselves and it's only been over the last few years that they've started to actively uh, provide sort of device management capabilities and other things like that and start to integrate with some of the big mobile device management vendors and and then of course in the last sort of two years working with these big uh, companies that already uh, have a strong presence in the enterprise like IBM and the others that we've talked about um, but yeah I mean it, it's the very thing that ultimately drove BlackBerry devices out of business um, BlackBerry the company obviously is sticking around, but. Uh, You know, is that that huge shift in behavior from enterprise IT departments being the buyers for these things to consumers being the buyers and then taking them into work. And that then forced adoption of interesting new models by companies like Bring Your Own Device and corporate-sponsored models where you kind of get a a range of devices to choose from and so on that, that were more reflective of what consumers wanted in their own personal lives. Um, but it's, it's a big shift, and, and there's an obvious reason for it. You know, to the extent the consumer markets become saturated uh, and to the extent that the consumer technology is already making its way into the enterprise, uh, these companies investing in making their products formally sort of enterprise-grade and enterfi- enterprise-certified obviously opens up huge new addressable markets for them uh, and can drive substantial revenue growth. So, you know, last year, roughly this time, was when they were reporting the September quarter earnings, Apple said that, Enterprise had been $25 billion of revenue for them over the previous year. It was about 7 to 8% of their total revenue during that time. But the key thing is it had grown by 40%. And this, of course, was in a period when Apple's revenue hadn't grown by nearly that much overall. So it's growing much faster than the rest of Apple's business. And I would guess it's easily 10% of total revenue now given what's happened to overall Apple revenues over the past year. So, uh, you know, it's a really substantial part of Apple's business. Uh, And so there's definitely this sort of offensive angle where you're kind of moving into these new markets. I, I think it's also interesting to think about the defensive angle because with things like Facebook at work, there's Slack, which is... Ostensibly an enterprise tool and has no ambition in the personal market But what you've seen is actually that tool has made its way into people's personal lives because they use it at work And then they come home and they use it to organize their family calendar or they use it with their friends to organize uh, Going out to a club or a bar or whatever or or for a meal Um, Or they might use it with a sports team to organize, you know Who's picking up who for the next game or whatever so people bringing that into their personal lives? So It's a rare example of technology coming the other way so I think there is a defensive angle, too, with something like Facebook at work.
1: But even with Slack, it had a much more consumer sort of marketing approach and branding strategy than a lot of enterprise companies traditionally have. I mean, Slack made it big in part because they did that uh, video with, the, with Adam Lizagor and, the, and uh, the sandwich video team. I mean, that's, that, that brought it much more to consumer attention, even though their target market obviously was corporations. I mean that's that's the way they make their money, and, and I think we've seen a lot of other enterprise-oriented companies take a more consumer-oriented um, branding approach. Thirty-seven Signals, I think, is pretty similar with Basecamp and Rise. I mean these are the, you know these are enterprise applications that feel like consumer apps, both in terms of the way they're designed, but also in terms of the the, the sort of brand angle that they that they take. It feels more like the way. You know, new tech start consumer tech startups go about doing their branding, and so I, I think this I, I think this consumer mindset uh, is there even for enterprise first companies, because they found creative ways to advertise and to promote their products on the internet using what the kind of tools that used to work just for, I, I mean the, the the tools that used to work just for consumers. So you do a really silly video to bring attention to your product. I mean, you wouldn't have done that years ago, right? If you're trying to pitch it to IT managers, because they'd roll their eyes at it and call it stupid. But today, it's actually a pretty successful branding strategy. And you end up reading about a product in the Wall
0: Street Journal, and then you use it for your organization, because they've, yeah, no, they've taken
1: a different mm-hmm. branding approach.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. And and I think uh, there's two other things that kind of play off that one is that um, the move of devices like the iPhone into the enterprise has really enabled that as well Because the way that a lot of these apps work and slack slack is a good example of this is You don't need a corporate IT department to turn it on for you Basically and Yammer work the same way where somebody in the organization could say this looks like a cool tool I'm going to install it on my phone. Do you want to start using it to my colleague? Um, and you both install it on your phone and you're off to the races, you know And then you get to a certain point where you want more enterprise features and you start getting the IT department involved or somebody at Yammer or slack realizes okay we've now got a hundred email addresses registered at company X maybe you should go talk to the IT department at company X and say do you want to formalize this relationship we can give you a discount or we can give you these enterprise-grade features or did you know people are using this you know maybe we can help you spread it throughout your organization and so it's been an interesting sort of backdoor into the enterprise for some of these apps as well and then the other thing is um, you know that these companies have Uh, Learned from that consumerization of IT. They've learned the things that people like to do in the enterprise They've learned what makes certain things appealing things like Dropbox and so on have made their way into the enterprise this way, too They've learned from that and said hey We're going to do this as a sort of deliberate sort of groundswell grassroots type effort um, to to get penetration in the enterprise and so Targeting different buyers or at least different initial users within the enterprise than they have traditionally done uh, And that obviously goes in tandem with with the proliferation of these consumer devices in the enterprise as well.
1: Yeah, it makes me wonder how long this new sort of wave, the consumer first wave is going to hold up. I mean, it's hard to imagine what would be next um, because I think a lot of what we consider a consumer approach, like you're saying ease of use, the fact that you don't need an IT department to turn on a feature for you. um, I think that ease of use feels like it's a long lasting change, right, that this is going to be the future of the way IT products oriented toward enterprise are, are going to be built and designed. I think if there is a shift away from that, it's going to be with the kind of things you're seeing IBM and SAP and Deloitte doing right now, which is the custom app development, um, where, where you've got you know, big, very talented firms and, and groups of people that are, that are writing custom apps for corporations that consumers are never really gonna even know exist, um, you know because these are gonna be used internally by employees, not by consumers more generally. And I think there's a lot of room there. And and this is where the iOS strategy in the enterprise, I think, has a chance to pay off big time for Apple. I think iPad upgrade cycles, for example, in enterprise, are going to be faster than they will be for consumers. The consumers aren't using iPads in any really intensive ways, but that's not going right. to be true for enterprise. And uh, and I think over time, you're going to see if, if if Apple can really make this stick, which it looks like they will, Um, I I think you're going to see iPad uh, replacement cycles actually tick up a bit because more and more companies are using and relying on them. Uh, The thing that stands out to me, too, in this is why isn't the Surface the center of these strategies, right? Why isn't Deloitte or any of these other companies announcing big strategies around the Microsoft Surface? And I think it's because they're missing the mobile phone component of this. Mm -hmm. I think without having a smartphone that can do... You know, with a with an altered UI, essentially what you can do on an iPad so that an executive, for example, can pull up a, an app that's all about custom reporting, for example, on certain metrics they use internally, I think missing that smartphone component is really going to cripple um, the Surface as opposed to the, the, the more general iOS platform and how that can be useful.
0: Right. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. And the other big thing is just the penetration in the, in the user base. Um, you know, I mentioned that Deloitte has 100,000 iOS devices already uh, in use internally with something like 75 custom apps. Uh, basically every Fortune 500 and Global 500 company has some kind of fleet of iPhones in the company already. It may be their main device, it may just be a subset of their device fleet, but they're there already. And so the question is just how do you make the most of those devices and the people that use them? And the answer is by kind of optimizing your business processes to take advantage of those devices that are there. And that's really what this Deloitte partnership is about at this point. All right. Well, I think we could probably carry on on this topic for quite a bit longer, but in the interest of time, I think we'll wrap up the conversation there on that and then wrap up this episode with our weekly pick. And this week, that's a recommendation from Aaron.
1: So I'm recommending a series of books um, by an author named Trenton Lee Stewart. These are children's books, but not for young, young kids. Um, They're fiction and they're centered around a, a, a group of kids that call themselves the Mysterious Benedict Society. That's actually the name of the first book in the series. Um, these are four children who are recruited by um, this sort of, you know, really smart, really amazing, but really odd old man who essentially recruits these children in each of the books to help save the world. And I don't want to give away too many details because I don't want to spoil the fun of the books, but, but they are fantastic. They're really well-written um, Nicholas Benedict, who's the who's the older man character? He's he's a fascinating, very lovable, very kind. What I love about the books is that is that each of the four children in this sort of team that's been recruited to 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 do all these uh, you know impossible tasks, each one brings a unique skill set, and they all learn to appreciate and and value each other's contributions, even though they're all kind of very uncommon. One in particular um, that I, I, I can't say, actually. I don't want to give it away. It's just it's too much fun to discover it as you read the books. These are really popular books, so I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of our listeners have, um, have already read at least the first one. But if you've read the first one and then just haven't gotten around to the others in the series, I strongly recommend you keep going. The second and third books in the Mysterious Benedict Society series are great with with characters you really learn to care about the fourth book in the series is actually more of a a prequel it's about nicholas benedict's uh childhood Uh, my son and i are halfway through it right now and it is riveting like i i sometimes find myself wanting to read ahead after he's gone to sleep (laughs) but i can't do that because he would be he'd be terribly betrayed um, the author Trent Lee Stewart is very talented. In, in fact, the timing is good on this pick of the week because he just came out with a new book this week called *The Secret Keepers*. It's a, it's a separate story. It's not at all connected to the to the Benedict Society stories, but um, but it's gotten rave reviews, and it looks like it's going to be another winner. So my recommendation is the author Trent Lee Stewart, generally, specifically the mysterious Benedict Society books. Um, including the prequel about the extraordinary education of Nicholas Benedict. They are, if you have kids that are seven and up, um, you know, they are, they're really fun reads. So that's my pick.
0: Great. Thank you, Aaron. Well, thanks to all of you for listening as well. We appreciate you being with us as always. If you have any feedback for us, find us on Twitter, leave a comment on the website. Uh, We'll put links to some of the stuff that we've talked about, uh, on the website as well, including the recommendations that Aaron just gave you, uh, and if you have some time, please go onto iTunes, into Overcast, and either uh, leave us a review on iTunes or a rating on iTunes, recommend an episode or several episodes on Overcast, uh, or do the same things on whatever other clients you might use to listen to this. We really appreciate that. It helps to other people to find the podcast as well. So thanks for being with us, and we'll be with you again next week. Bye-bye.